Welcome back to Women in the Word. I'm Lynn Kitchens, part of the teaching team. So glad to be with you studying David. We have so much that we can learn from him, lots we can apply to our lives. Um, So let's get started doing that. But first, I want to tell you about this summer, we got to go to Montana for a family vacation. We brought everybody with us. And um, the town we were in had this indoor carousel. And this is granddaughter Sylvie about to go for a ride. Do you notice anything interesting when you look at that? Have you ever been on a merry-go-round where they double seatbelt you? Okay, that should have been a clue. Our son was on this same ride. He had his two-year-old son, and of course, he was standing next to him. And sure enough, overcame a worker and said, no, 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 you have to get on a horse and buckle up. That should also have been a clue. (laughs) Sure enough, everyone was expecting just this typical slow merry-go-round ride with everyone waving and going by, pictures being taken. But when they turned on that carousel... Everybody took off to the races. It was the fastest thing we'd ever seen, super speed, horses flying by, going up and down as fast as they could. No way to take a picture because they were gone like a blur. It was crazy. When they'd come by you, the kids were just having the best time in the life. The parents were screaming and trying to hold on to their kids. Uh, It was fun, but it wasn't the way a merry-go-round is supposed to work. And so when I was working on this message, I thought, this is pretty much how life is. We expect our lives to go smoothly, to enjoy it, to be fun, to be satisfying. I mean, God wants us to be happy, right? God has promised us an abundant life. So when things get out of control in our life, when that happens, When things get scary and when we have to face things that we didn't plan on facing, sometimes we don't understand. And we often view those hard things as accidents that just came into our life. They interrupt our lives. They interrupt them emotionally. They interrupt them and get in the way of our happiness. So what we tend to do is just start fighting against those hard things in our life those trials. But the reality is, just like an out-of-control carousel horse, life always has its ups and downs. Life always has its highs and its lows. And when that happens, it's easy to forget God reigns over both, both of those situations. So the question is, Are we going to trust God in both those kind of situations in our life? Are we going to do all of life with God at our side, the celebration and the suffering, instead of letting fear or bitterness or doubts of God's love and power start to come into our hearts when we start pulling away from him? Look look at Ephesians 1.11. And it says this, In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things, all things according to the counsel of his will. That's our God. In fact, look uh, on the top of your outline. It says this, Many are the plans in the mind of a man, but it is the purpose of the Lord that will stand. To do life well, we have to trust God's sovereignty and his plans in our life while he is accomplishing his purposes. So instead of trying to control those difficult things or push against our trials, can we just invite God to be the seatbelt and ask him to come along on the ride with us so he can bless us and keep us safe and give us peace? You know, when my daughter Cassie began college, we talked together about all those things she was going to have to accomplish in school. And so we drew a circle and we began making segments like pieces of pie on her life. 
And so we had class, and it was this really big segment. And then we had study, and she made it a really small segment. And that was what we did with the whole pie, friends, sorority, whatever else was going to be in her life. And then I told her, we talked together, how it would be so tempting just to make God one of the pieces of pie. Oh, and then here's my God area, and that might mean this is when I have my quiet time or this is when I go to church, and she could call that time God. But the truth is we all know God is more than just a piece of pie in our life. He is the pie. Everything in our life revolves around God. Everything we do, everywhere we go, everyone we know, it all revolves around Him and our relationship with Him. And that's going to include good times and bad times. It's going to include the highs, the lows, the joys, and the sorrows. If we decide to live life with God just being one compartment in our life, we will not do life well. And we'll learn that the hard way. And who had more confusing ups and downs in his life than David? He was always riding the crazy carousel horse everywhere he went. But I think one of the reasons he was a man after God's own heart is he walked with God in all those different kind of scenarios. This is what David knew in his heart. The very worst suffering in life is to face the hard things without God. That's true suffering. So chapter 5 and 6 give us some great examples of how David just joined God joined God on the plans that God had for him in his life. But I want to say off the bat, you know, I'm not saying David never sinned. I'm not saying that at all. Uh, He was a sinner, just like we are. Sometimes David was even oblivious to his sins. But unlike almost every king that came after David, David never stopped loving the one true God. You know, he had false gods totally surrounding their nation. There were false idols everywhere. And that is what everyone in the worlds around them, that's what they were doing. But David kept his devotion strong to God the whole time. I want to look at how he faced both loss and both abundance with God at his side. So turn in your Bible to 2 Samuel 5, and we'll look at the first three verses. Then all the tribes of Israel came to David at Hebron and said, Behold, we are your bone and flesh. In times past, when Saul was king over us, it was you who led out and brought in Israel. And the Lord said to you, you shall be shepherd of my people Israel. You shall be prince over Israel. So all the elders of Israel came to the king at Hebron, and King David made a covenant with them at Hebron before the Lord, and they anointed David king over Israel. At last, we have been chasing David for two semesters, waiting for him to be the king of Israel. And this is when it happens. And lots has happened in his life since he was that young shepherd. That was the time Samuel anointed him to be king. But in order to flee King Saul's jealous pursuits of David, he has been living in loss for many years. So with God's promise of a kingdom before him, he suffered great loss while he waited on God's timing. So he had to leave his wife. He had to leave his family at different times. He left his best friend. He left his position in the palace. He lived in the wilderness. He lived in dangerous lands without a lasting home of his own. He faced enemies. He faced persecution death, despair, and always confusion. But in all these things, David knew that he was never alone. His greatest strength lay in his belief through all those things. God's going to be faithful to me. After Saul's death, we know that David reigned over Judah. 
but not the entire nation that God had planned, the entire nation of Israel. And then he waited seven more years for God's promise to come to fruition. And during those seven years, he stayed on that crazy carousel horse, but he never tried to force Israel to follow him. He never tried to make them loyal to him. He never made the first move. And instead of getting mad at God about it, he would ask God, what do I do next? He continued to have faith. And because he had faith, he became patient. And because he was patient, he inherited the promise of God. And I love that. It's really true. The more faith we have, the more patient we become, and we can reap that abundance from God. Look at Hebrews 6, 6, 11. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness, to have the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. Okay, so one day... We just read David's in Hebron, and he's looking out over the hills, or maybe it's somebody that works for David at that point, and they run and tell him. But out over the hills comes this large delegation of Israel and the elders and the tribes, and they're coming through the valley, and they're coming towards David. And I bet David ran to watch them coming because this was the promises of God coming true. So I'm thinking he dropped to his knees and worshiped at that point. I know he did sometime that day. So Saul's son, Ishbosheth is dead. Saul's commander, Abner, is dead. And now all Israel is finally ready to accept the king of God's choosing. And in um, verse 5, Chapter 5, we see that the word all is used three times to emphasize that David's kingdom would be a united kingdom, including all of Israel as God ordained. And the leaders that gathered at Hebron that day began by reminding David he belonged to the entire nation, not just the tribe of Judah. And don't you know that those were words David was longing to hear? We belong to you too from loss to great abundance. You know, when we've been surrounded by those dark valleys, we should always be looking out too to see what is it God's doing? In what ways is God going to bless me? What are the blessings heading my way? And if you're like me, sometimes when blessings come, I forget they came from God. Have you ever told someone something they said, you've been praying about this? And you're like, I have. This is an answer from God. We should be watching for that. Israel knew that they needed a shepherd because they had to get the flock together so that they would thrive as a nation, and they knew that David was God's choice. Israel wanted that former shepherd boy so they could have a shepherd king, and that is who David would become. Look down at Psalm 78. He chose David his servant and took him from the sheepfolds. From following the nursing ewes, he brought him to shepherd Jacob, his people, Israel, his inheritance. With upright heart, he shepherded them and guided them with a skillful hand. That's the king that David would become. So Israel's submitting to David's rule over them, and we heard three reasons. First of all, David was the Israelite kinsman by blood. No foreigner was supposed to rule over Israel. Look at Deuteronomy 17. God said, you may indeed set a king over you whom the Lord your God will choose. One from among your brothers you shall set as king over you. You may not put a foreigner over you who is not your brother. So the blood of Jacob from years before, Jacob, who fathered the 12 sons, which became the 12 tribes of Israel, that blood united all of Israel as one nation under God. 
And secondly, they said, hey, you've been our greatest and most trusted military commander. This is one of the main points of Saul's jealousy over David. And Israel also knew David was chosen by God to shepherd and rule us. And I love it because who would be better as a king than David who believed God was his shepherd as well? Psalm 23, one of our favorite, the Lord is my shepherd. That was David's words. And I shall not be in want. And I believe that was his focus for the nation of Israel. So these leaders that stood before David, they believed this is the kind of king you will be because God chose you. And so now the elders, they all approach him for David's third anointing as king. Remember, first he was a young shepherd. Secondly, he was Judah's king seven years earlier. But if you look at the wording in verse 1, um, this gathering in Hebron begins with the tribes of Israel coming to David. But then if you look at verse 3, the language changes. It's the elders of Israel coming to King David. So what's the difference? This is because in verse 3, it was time to make a covenant. And there was a legal nature to the covenant. And it would have contained a commitment to God's law. It would have had binding obligations on both sides. We're not sure exactly what else was in it. Maybe David was agreeing to follow the Mosaic uh, commitment to kingship and the requirements. But at age 30, David is finally wearing his crown, and the first move he makes is to move the capital of Israel from Hebron to Jerusalem. And, you know, God had promised Israel before they got in the promised land, we have, I have a place for you. Um, and he appointed a place that he said, this, there'll be a place where you will worship me. And I really think God led David to that place. So first, the location of Jerusalem would help unify Israel. Jerusalem was sort of um, on the border. You had, you had Judah, then you had the northern tribes, and in between was the area of Jerusalem, and that was a neutral um, area. And so once they took it, they would unite all the tribes together. Also, it would keep some of the people from thinking David was showing um, a preference for, for a particular tribe because he went into a certain tribe to form the capital. So this was a good place to do it. Secondly, it was a fortified city. It, it had a lot of valleys. It had a lot of hills. It had a lot of natural barriers um, for defense. It had a great water supply. It had great potential for trade. So it was a good idea to make Jerusalem Israel's capital. But I think the inhabitants of Jerusalem had a different idea. The Jebusites lived there, and they'd been in there since the days of Joshua. And um, they were Canaanites, and they weren't planning on going anywhere and didn't think anyone could make them go anywhere. And so the taunting began. Look in chapter 5, verse 6. And the king and his men went to Jerusalem against the Jebusites, the inhabitants of the land, who said to David, you won't come in here. The blind and the lame will ward you off, thinking David can't come in here. Nevertheless, David took the stronghold of Zion, that is the city of David, and David said on that day, whoever would strike the Jebusites, let him get up the water shaft to attack the lame and the blind who are hated by David's soul. Therefore, it said, the blind and the lame shall not come into the house. And David lived in the stronghold and called it the city of David. And David built the city all around from the Milo inward. Okay, so the Lord had promised Israel that they would conquer all the Canaanite nations, including the Jebusites. So it was by faith that David went ahead and attacked Israel. He took up his position in the stronghold of Zion, which is just south of the Jebusite city. It was on the highest hill in the area, and he continues to lead his men as the skilled commander that he was. 
It seems the Jebusites were defeated by David's men going through the water shaft. And I found out that there have been excavations in Zion and they have actually found a water shaft that could have been the one that David's men used. Um, We learn in Chronicles, David promised the first man to strike the Jebusites would become the commander of his army. And David's nephew, Joab, he was that man. And we've already seen Joab in action. Okay, the thing that sort of bothers you in this passage is about the lame and the blind. Did David really hate the lame and the blind? And did he keep them later on from coming into his home in Jerusalem? You're about to see that's not true because we know in the future that Mephibosheth is going to come into Jerusalem and David is going to treat him with great kindness and he himself was a lame man. Probably in this battle when David said those words referring probably not just to the lame and the blind but he was talking about all the Jebusites, that they were lame and blind to him because he hated what they said, that he was throwing their own words back at him. So later in his house in Jerusalem, it didn't mean the lame and blind couldn't come into his house. It meant no Jebusite could come into his house because that's what he was calling them. So he turned their taunt into a victory song. So Zion would become the place where David would live and one day... David's son Solomon would build a temple for the Lord on that same area, Israel's temple. The city of Jerusalem was often called Zion or the city of David. And the city grew around the Milo. These were like stone terraces that they used to reinforce the areas of the city that were really more open to attack and more vulnerable. Okay, let's look at verse 10. And David became greater and greater, for the Lord, the God of hosts, was with him. David continued to gain abundant power and influence and prestige because God was with him, the God of hosts. Here, meaning the myriads of angels that were under God's command. And then the king of Tyre sat up, like many other nations did, and took notice of David. Look at verse 11. And Hiram, king of Tyre, sent messengers to David and cedar trees, also carpenters and masons, who built David a house. David finally has his own place. So Tyre was a Phoenician city. It was on the Mediterranean, just north of Israel. King Hiram ended up trading with Israel for many years. And the Phoenicians would bring Um, all those years, building materials because they had access to all this lumber and trees and wood and they'd bring it to Israel and then Israelites would trade with them agricultural products. And I thought that was so neat because um, they were so gifted at agriculture and they really still are today. If you've ever been there and you look around Israel as a nation, and it's just colorful and green for almost all of it. And then when you kind of look out towards the other areas, you see a lot of brown, and it's not productive, anything like it is in Israel. And then every morning when I would go there, um, I would think, okay, I'm going to have a bagel in the morning for breakfast. And you'd go down, and it would be, no, it would be vegetables, vegetables for breakfast, fish for for breakfast, and more vegetables. Um, That is something they did well, and that is something that uh, they became friends with um, King Hiram because of that. We would expect him to want to have an alliance with Israel because everyone knew God's favor is on this country. But we also learn in 1 Kings that King Hiram loved King David. He loved him. And after David's death, it was either Hiram or a successor that brought the cedar and the lumber to help David's son Solomon build the temple, Israel's temple to the Lord. In these verses, Hiram's men actually build David a palace themselves. And I just had to envision David here. He's standing outside his very own palace staring at what God has built for him. 
And I wonder if all the plans of God that brought David to this very moment suddenly impacted his heart. God's promises, faithfulness, his direction in his life, his provision. David had given up any kind of plans he may have had and joined God on the plans and purposes that God had for him. And now he's surrounded by God's people, by God's city. And that is so amazing to me that as he witnessed this, you know David had to be having this experience from his head to his toes. He is not thinking about himself. He is thinking about God, and he's thinking about God's people. Look at verse 12. And David knew that the Lord had established him king over Israel, and that he had exalted his kingdom for the sake of his people, Israel. Because of what God had built in his life, David knew now God has made me the king of Israel, but he knew it wasn't for his sake. It wasn't for his power. It wasn't for his glory. It was for the sake of God's people. So when David looked at this abundance surrounding him, he had the Israelites on his mind. All that David had become as he trusted in God's plan had built who he now was. He was stronger spiritually. He was stronger physically. He was wiser. It would be a benefit to the people of God. And he was thinking as this new king, how God wanted to use him to bless others. And I just love that. I think what an inspiration for us today. When God has built good things in our lives, we should commit to sharing those things with others. And we may think, well, we don't have a palace. What are the good things? Well, after we've gone through a trial and we've gone through loss, and God blesses us and brings us to the end of that, aren't we more compassionate towards others? Aren't we more generous? Aren't we more wise and understanding to other people? Um, I saw in the news just recently about this wonderful man. He was in the military. I'm sure he suffered a lot in the military. And he also was getting old and had some illnesses. And he would go down to the drugstore and get the medicine that he needed. And one day he stopped and said, do you have people come that can't pay for their meds? And the lady said, yeah, all the time. And he said, well, here. And he gave her $100. And he said, use this if somebody needs help. And then he did it again and again and again. And I think it takes someone who's suffering themselves with sickness to understand. And we should use how God's blessing us to bless others. And it was really interesting because um, when he was dying, he said to his daughter, hey, I never told you, but I've been giving $100 to the pharmacy every once in a while. I want you to continue it. And on this news show, they said, well, how much money did he give? And they said, probably over $10,000 in his lifetime. He took the blessings of God it wasn't about him. It was about other people. In fact, one woman told the story of coming in, running, needing an EpiPen, and it was $800, they said. $800. And she started crying. She said, I, I, I don't have $800. And they said, no problem. We've got you covered. Someone already paid it for you. They had been saving up. They were waiting for the right people to give that money to so let's be like David. Let's give God the credit for good things. Let's take those things into a broken world because there are broken people. God wants us to bless them. Okay, since the writer's talking about David's home here, he also mentions David's wives and concubines and children. You know, David was unwise in multiplying the amount of wives he had for alliances with other nations, unwise to have that many concubines. That's what pagan kings did. Often pagan kings, that's how they measured the stature of your kingdom on how many harems you had. Israel wasn't supposed to conform to the other nations. You read that in your homework in Deuteronomy. 
they were supposed to be different than that, and David was going to face the consequences of that. So we're not going to read the names of the children in verse 14 because I don't want to pronounce them all. But there are two children's names in that list we have to mention and think about. First of all, Nathan in verse 14, from the line of Nathan would come a woman named Mary who would become the mother of Jesus. Another name on there, Solomon, from the line of Solomon would come a man named Joseph. One day they would travel together to Bethlehem and Jesus would be born in the same town that David was born. And he would be called a son of David. And we see from his lineage here, humanly, he was. He would also be a shepherd king like David. So let's look at another up and down in David's life, the battles and the victories You know, it could have been a temptation for David to assume since God has finally made David king of all Israel. Now his trials will kind of go away. Life will get easier. And I know that happens to us sometimes. When a trial comes to an end, we think, okay, maybe everything hard is done. Life is always going to bring us those hard things in our life and conflict. And we have to decide, okay, am I always going to step into these things with God at my side. Knowing his purposes can be accomplished. David would face a lot of these things the rest of his life, and some of them were true military battles. So right off the bat, when the Philistines hear of David's success, it totally terrified them because once upon a time, they thought David was on their side. Now they know for sure he isn't, and they know that God is with him and God gives him favor. And so they decide we got to get to this guy, David, and stop Israel before they get too powerful. So they gather at Rephaim, only three or four miles from Jerusalem, and there are two battles that take place. Here's their problem. They do not realize that God is going to make Israel succeed, and he always would. David was chosen by God to overcome the Philistines. Since David was successful and powerful and esteemed, you know, you almost think, again, he would forget God and just say, here's what we're going to do. I'm really good at this. (laughs) Come on, follow me. He goes to God and says, what do you want me to do? He knows it's God that has given Israel every victory that they've had. Let's read some of the words he wrote as he faced some of Saul's past pursuits. Look at Psalm 18. I love this. He says, I love you, Lord, my strength. The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield, and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. I call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised, and I am saved from my enemies. Once more, knowing that Israel's victories come from God, David sought God's direction against the Philistine. God answers David and says, I'm going to give them into your hands, and he does in a very powerful way. Look at verse 20. And David came to Baal-perazim, and David defeated the Philistines there. And he said, The Lord has broken through my enemies before me like a breaking flood. And he called the name of that place Baal-perazim. Okay, so that would mean, perazim would mean breaks through. So David is saying here, God just broke through. The armies broke through the lines of the Philistines as powerfully and violently as mighty waters breaking through a dam. That's how quick and overwhelming Israel was. And it was so fast that the Philistines just took off (laughs) running home and left all their idols behind. Now, why did they have idols with them? Because while David called on the one true God, The Philistines were calling on these false idols to make their victory secure, and of course they didn't. Now, guess what happened next? When you read in Chronicles, David looked at those idols and told his men, pick those up and burn them. 
And it's amazing to think not too many years from now, some of the kings of Israel would put those in their palace, would have those in their homes, but not under David's watch. Okay, David seeks God again when the Philistines quickly return for a second battle. This time God says, okay, I want you to uh, wait until you hear the sound of marching coming out from the tops of the balsam trees. Now, when we read that, we think it's a little weird, but okay, he could wait. But, you know, he's waiting with his enemies all before him and around him and looking for him. It had to be hard just to stand and wait for the sound of marching in the trees. And we don't know, was this a supernatural thing, this sound, or was it a natural wind in the trees that God used? You know, we don't really know because God had won victories for Israel in both those kind of ways. Then they end up winning that battle because they waited and obeyed God, and he gave them the victory. And this time, they pushed the Philistines back another 15 miles away from them, regaining territory that Saul had lost from the Philistines earlier. And 1 Chronicles 14 tells us this, David's fame spread throughout every land and God made all the nations fear him. You know, because God was sought by David and brought into the battles with him, there were two victories before him. He was able to break through barriers and he was able to gain that lost territory, new territory. And both these things are true in our lives. When we are facing battles and conflict, if we seek God and ask him to direct us through those situations. So if we seek God and then we obey his word and what he tells us to do, we can just break through those fears that come in battles that confront us. That's... that's uh, true in our life very much. That's God's battle plan for us. Never does God think, have, have fun, you know, have a good time trying to get through this trial. He says, my battle plan is that we're going to do this together and I'm going to bring you the victory in it. We can break through our fears when we know that. Secondly, we can gain new territory in our lives. Territory we may have lost when we lacked faith. God leads us into those when we ask him to be our guide. And what are those new territories? It may be new places of comfort, peace, courage. It may be new ministries. It may be new serving. You know, years ago, Christ Chapel had a women's retreat, and we had a woman whose husband was with the James Dobson crew when they were on a plane and they crashed and it was a fatal crash. And her husband was one of them. And, you know, we were so amazed at the peace that God had given her and how hard and how much she grieved. But she stood up because God was at her side and he even presented her with this ministry. She was helping women that were going into prostitution in Fort Worth. That was the new territory that God had given her. He can give us those new things when he's our God. Look at Psalm 138. On the day I called, you answered me. My strength of soul, you increased. It's a territory. Strengthen our soul that God can increase. Okay, then because God loved David so much, he had high hopes to get the ark of God back into Israel. It symbolized the glorious throne of God, his power and his presence. And David wanted to honor God with that ark. He wanted to unite uh, the, the Israelites by bringing it to Jerusalem. And so for a hundred years, the Ark of God had been separated from Israel as their place of worship. It first was in the tabernacle built when Israel was in the wilderness after they left Egypt. In the Ark were 10 commandments written by the finger of God, a pot of manna, and Aaron's staff. And during the time of the judges, the Ark resided in Shiloh in a tabernacle there. 
And eventually Israel made the mistake of taking it into a battle against the Philistines and they captured it. They had it for a while and then returned it because God was judging Philistia while they had it. At this point right now with David, this ark is guarded in the home of Abinadab. It had stayed there neglected by Saul when he was king. David could not neglect the ark of God. He wanted God's presence. He wanted God's favor. He wanted to worship God in a nation with the ark of God there. He wanted the nation surrounding them to know this nation believes in one God, one good God. So 1 Chronicles 13 tells us David got commanders together. He got hundreds and thousands of leaders together. He invited priests and Levites to come from Israel, people in the city, people in the pastures, and included them in the decision. Should we get the ark and should we bring it to Jerusalem? And they all got so excited. And who's being left out of this picture? We don't see them consulting God about it. God, how would you want us to go about this? What should we do here? In their enthusiasm, they started forgetting about the sacredness, the holiness of God and this throne, and that he had given specific laws on how to handle and how to move the ark of God. So let's look chapter 6, verse 3. And they carried the ark of God on a new cart. This is when they went to go get it brought it out of the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill, and Uzzah and Ahio, the sons of Abinadab, were driving the new cart with the ark of God, and Ahio went before the ark. And David and all the house of Israel were celebrating before the Lord with songs and lyres and harps, tambourines, castanets, and cymbals. And when they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, Uzzah put out his hand to the ark of God and took hold of it, for the oxen stumbled." And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah, and God struck him down there because of his error, and he died there beside the ark of God. And David was angry because the Lord had broken out against Uzzah. And that place is called Perez Uzzah to this day, which means break out against Uzzah. And David was afraid of the Lord that day, and he said, how can the ark of the Lord come to me? Okay. We're going to show a picture of what they should have done. This is a painting someone did of them bringing the ark across the Jordan River on their way into the promised land. And I think it's beautiful. But if you look at it, we can ask these questions as the way David just did it. Why was the ark on a cart? Why was it being carried by pagan Philistines manner of how they carried the ark? Why weren't they using poles as God had ordained? Where were the Levite priests who were supposed to be carrying it on their shoulders? And why did someone touch it when God had said not to? So God judged Israel's irreverent actions, and he wanted to remind them, God's people obey God's words to receive his blessings. Look at Proverbs 14. There is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death if we don't approach God in the plans that we make. This was a new era for Israel when we think about it, and they needed to realize as a now a united nation under God, they cannot progress beyond the truths of a holy God and his word Many years have gone by since Israel worshiped God in this wilderness tabernacle, and things may have changed, but God had not changed, and neither had his word. It makes me think how easily we as Christians can fall into the same mindset. We hear the word progressive even in our churches and our Bible studies as if there are new ways to follow God, ways that might not line up exactly with his living word. And I think the world is always going to be changing. We can just praise God that he doesn't. Praise God that his word doesn't. It is a joy in our life. Our enthusiastic work for God must be accomplished God's way and not man's way. 
So I think maybe David and the Israelites became freshly afraid of God at this moment. And we think that's a sad thing. It was a good thing because we know the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. If the people in this nation finally wanting to thrive together as one, if they were no longer awed by God's holiness and by the word of God, then the kingdom would be at risk. In Chronicles, we learn that when David was in such despair because he had been so enthusiastic, then he was in this despair, he had to go to God because this is what he said. The Lord our God broke out against us, but we because we didn't seek him according to his rules. So he pitched another tent for the ark in Jerusalem, believing God would bless them on their next journey of obedience. Which brings us to our last look at doing all of life with God. As we walk with God, what do we do when we're confronted with joyous people and bitter people? If God's at our side, we can do that with wisdom. Look at verse 12. It was told King David, the Lord has blessed the house of Obed-Edom and all that belongs to him because of the ark of God. So David went and brought up the ark of God into the house of, to the city of David with rejoicing. And when those who bore the ark of the Lord had gone six steps, he sacrificed an ox and a fattened animal. And David danced before the Lord with all his might, and he was wearing a linen ephod. David and all the house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouting and with the sound of the horn. Okay, this time David handled the ark God's way. It was an occasion like no others. Thousands of people, seven miles to get the ark, seven miles to come back, gathering the ark. He made sure the Levites were doing it right. He made sure that everything else God commanded was right. And if you and I happened to be in Jerusalem that day, we could see that crowd coming and we would hear that crowd coming. It was the celebration you couldn't believe approaching the city. They expressed their devotion to God with shouts and songs and dancing, songs of joy. And we could see our king. And there he had on his little linen robe and a linen ephod that the priest would wear. And he was dancing with all his might. Why was he acting like he was a priest? He wasn't a priest. He had a special anointing that day from the Lord. And he participated in priestly activities. He did sacrifices. He blessed the people. I also think this. I think David laid aside his kingly robe because he was welcoming God as Israel's king. And also, if he had on his royal garments, he could not have participated with all the people as one. He would have been set apart. He wanted to celebrate with God's people. So we learn, we join people in their celebrations, and we don't try to be the center of attention. David wanted God to be the center of attention. Okay, but here's someone who's going to throw a damper on all of this. Look at verse 16. As the ark of the Lord came into the city of David, Michael, the daughter of Saul, looked out the window and saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord, and she despised him in her heart. Verse 20, and David returned to bless his household, but Michael, the daughter of Saul, came out to meet David and said, how the king of Israel honored himself today uncovering himself today before the eyes of his servants, female servants, as one of the vulgar fellows shamelessly uncovers himself. And David said to Michael, it was before the Lord who chose me above your father and above all his house to appoint me as prince over Israel, the people of the Lord, and I will celebrate before the Lord. And I will make myself yet more contemptible than this and be abased in your eyes, but by the female servants of whom you've spoken, I shall be held in honor. And Michael, the daughter of Saul, had no child to the day of her death. Remember, Michael was David's first wife. And here she'd been brought back to him after being separated for quite a while. And we see her just running out of the temple. It's like she can't wait. I mean, out of the palace. Can't wait to throw a wet towel on David's joy. Um, 
Do you notice how she's always described in these verses? Never is the wife of David. She is the daughter of Saul and may be intentionally here because she is her father's daughter. Like her father, pride is a problem. She's concerned about appearances. She seems disconnected from the celebration. Why wasn't she worshiping? Why wasn't she celebrating with the people? Why wasn't she excited her husband got to have these priestly duties on that day? I think David was probably reminded of the pride of Saul as he stood listening to her and looking into her eyes. And maybe that's why David brought up Saul at this moment. He reminds Michael, it is me, the humble, not your proud father that God has made king. And he offers no apology that unlike her father, he will humble himself continually before the Lord and be satisfied by the esteem of the lowest servants in the kingdom. David faced her sarcastic rebuke with truth by reminding her he was celebrating the plans of God, plans for Israel that he was so thrilled about. And I thought, unfortunately, the world can often criticize our faith, misunderstand our joys as Christians, and want to throw a wet towel on it. Um, they may just misunderstand, but we don't need to apologize. If we're humble, we don't apologize for God's goodness in our lives, and we shouldn't stay silent. I read this great quote. It said this, There are times to be calm, times to be enthusiastic, but can it be right to give all our coldness to Christ and all our enthusiasm to the world? We need the world to see by sharing our joy about God, it's a testimony of who he is and a witness to the world. Look at Psalm 71. May my accusers be put to shame and consumed with scorn and disgrace. May they be covered who seek my hurt. But I will hope continually and will praise you, God, yet more and more. With the mighty deeds of the Lord God, I will come to them and I will remind them of your righteousness. Yours alone. So we should not be detoured by the world's contempt, but boldly we celebrate God's faithfulness in our life. So in loss and battle, in battles and victories, in loss and abundance, hope and despair, facing joy and bitterness, David lived his life with God. When we do that, we will live life well. Let me pray. Father, we praise you for who you are. We praise you for these truths. We thank you for your faithfulness. And may we always remember you are at our side in the good times and the bad times, and you are accomplishing your purposes. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.